Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning here at St. Paul's. A special welcome to those who are here in the gym this Father's Day and to those listening in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide on KFUO.org. A few news and notes before we get started this morning. First, there are uh, handouts over there on the bleachers if anyone does not have a handout, uh, as well as some Bibles. And then uh, also, as our normal practice is, we go through the readings for the following Sunday. But if you notice, uh, the scripture lessons assigned uh, for today's Bible study are that of the Festival of Holy Trinity, which would traditionally be today. However, because we have the great honor of hosting uh, Reverend Michael Ziegler, the Lutheran Hour speaker, and having him preach uh, God's word to us today, we will be doing the Festival of Holy Trinity next Sunday. So it's a little bit uh, delayed, but it's still a wonderful chance to look at uh, God's word and to study what he tells us. Now, before we begin, let's have a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today thankful for the many gifts you have given us, the gifts of our homes, our families, our friends, our loved ones, especially this day on Father's Day. We thank you for all the uh, wonderful men who have raised children in this world, who have taught them your word, who have kept Christ at the center of what it means to be a man and to grow in the faith. We pray your blessing on those who are worshiping with us today and those Christians who are worshiping around the world today, and that all that we do would not be to the glory of ourselves, but to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Uh, to start today, we're going to look at the psalm first. I realize this is what I tend to do. I don't know why. I just kind of gravitate uh, towards that. But I really... Uh, love this psalm, and when you look at it, you'll see why it's such a great psalm for the Festival of Holy Trinity, or Trinity Sunday, uh, and it's Psalm 8. And to start, we have who wrote the psalm. Right away, we read it's uh, a psalm according to David. We read in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And it's interesting when we look at this psalm, you may notice that uh, that first line of verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, there's something different about the two lords that are in that line. One is completely capitalized, and one is a capital L with a lowercase o, r, and d. And there's a very specific reason why that occurs, not just in this psalm, but uh, elsewhere in scripture is that when you see the four capital uh, letters in Lord, that is God's personal name. It's Yahweh. It's what he tells Moses he is when he's at the burning bush. And that second Lord, the Lord that starts with an L in his lowercase for the last three letters, that is the Hebrew word Adonai, or ruler, master, also Lord, which is why we're able to translate it O Lord, our Lord. And when you mention the name of Yahweh, O Lord, Yahweh, O Yahweh, our Lord, is not just simply calling upon his name, but his essence, his being, acknowledging that he is the one true living God. And when we say, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that word for majesty indicates a, a nobility, a royalty. It's what would be used to describe uh, great natural wonders, like vast seas would be described as majestic, or special garments, the cream of the crop, the real fancy stuff would be seen as a majestic robe. And when we look at what's going to follow in the psalm, you can see why David proclaimed how majestic is the name of Yahweh, his essence, his being, how great, to say it maybe in the words of a hymn, is our God. 
We get to verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And you might see, well, that seems a little redundant. Babies and infants, and maybe there's a little confusion as to why you need to include both. But these are two specific kind of um, classes, you could say, of young children. The babies would be children who maybe... uh, we're certainly not young men or women, but maybe two to five, maybe even a little younger than that. But infants is literally those who are still nursing. So if you think about uh, that, that'd be a group of children that could be no older than probably eight months to a year. And this is actually what Jesus quotes uh, in the temple. You may remember it uh, from the phrase, out of the mouths of babes, as sometimes is often said. But it's from Matthew 21. So if you have a Bible with you or you want to follow along uh, on your phone, if you turn to Matthew 21, verse 14, we read, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he, that's Jesus, healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Now in the context of that Matthew 21 verse, we can see exactly why uh, this would have been a very scandalous statement for Jesus to make, quoting Psalm 8 here, because in the first two verses of Psalm 8, it's very clear who is being praised. It is Yahweh, it is God himself whose name is majestic, who is our Lord. And in Matthew 21, the children are saying or singing, Hosanna to the Son of of David, referring to Jesus. And so when the chief priests and the rulers get upset about this, what's Jesus' response? Oh, well, you know, they're just children. No, he says, well, don't you remember what's said in Psalm 8? That out of the mouths of babies and infants will come praise for the majestic Lord, your Lord. This would have been a very... Uh, scandalous statement for Jesus to make. It's a pretty clear indication, and they understood it as Jesus saying, well, they're praising God when they say this. By praising me, they're praising God. And therefore, Jesus is acknowledging that he and the Father are one. And we continue into verse 3 of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens... Uh, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. It's a contemplative moment. David thinks about all the wonders of the world. And if you've ever been out on a real a rural area or maybe out camping, you know what it's like to look up at the stars and they look a lot different than when, maybe when you're closer to the city. When you have all the lights that kind of cancel out the brightness of the stars, But when you're out in a desolate area where there's not city lights and electricity, you look up and you see that and you think, wow, that looks pretty darn cool. And so here it's David himself uh, having that contemplative moment. He said, when I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the handiwork of God himself, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then he continues in verse 4 by saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David is looking up at these stars, looking at the majestic nature of God, and then thinking of himself. And when you start comparing those two things, how majestic is Yahweh, how majestic is the Lord your God, and then how unmajestic man is, he can't help but say, what am I? 
What is any man that you uh, were mindful of him? Or the son of man, the son of Adam, literally in the Hebrew, that you care for him? And this is right away, it connects right back to the first two verses. And when we think of that majestic, I said it kind of indicates a royalty, a special place, something that is awe-inspiring. In fact, that's the way the Greek translates it in the Septuagint, is how awe-causing is your name in all the earth. When you think of that, and then think of ourselves, the sinful self that we are, it's a humbling reality. But the good news is Psalm 8 doesn't end right there. We continue into verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Right there, we think right back to the creation account. And what does God say? Well, let us make man in our image. That though there's not the worthiness in man, God himself has placed him, even though he's a sinful, unmajestic being, he has actually given him every bit of dominion over the things as he continues, uh, dominion over the works of your hands, what you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. That man is given dominion, this man who is unmajestic compared to the majesty of God. And here you have that kind of back and forth that we so often see in the Psalms. Um, and anytime we ourselves contemplate our own lives and compare it to the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God himself, that God, Yahweh, is truly the majestic, living, one, true God, and we have no worthiness whatsoever. And yet we do and are given incredible things by him. And then David ends, fittingly enough, with that same proclamation that he started the psalm with. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So it's kind of a nice bookend. If you look at verses 1 and 9 and just remove them, what are you left with? Well, you're left with the reality that uh, creation praises God. And compared to God, man is not worthy even in the least bit. He, man is not majestic. God is majestic but yet god has given man the power over the works of his hands and so what's the response to that well it's the same thing we declared at the start of the psalm so you can see why it's so appropriate that david kind of bookends uh the psalm both with the first verse and the ninth verse the last verse of the psalm O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as we think about the festival of Holy Trinity, I want us to maybe keep in mind those two verses, the verses that say the very same thing. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That when we think of God and what he's done for us, we are reminded of just how great and powerful, how mighty, how truly majestic, special, set apart, royal majestic he is and how often we actually all the time do not even hold a candle to that majesty all right any questions i'll open up for questions real quick that was kind of a short psalm so we were able to get through it pretty quickly but uh any questions on psalm 8 Nope. All right. Well, let's go on to the gospel reading. And like uh, many times, I probably sound like a broken record saying this, when we look at this gospel reading, context is key. And so if you have your Bibles with you or following along on your phone, uh, the gospel reading is John 8, 48 to 59. But I'm actually going to start at John 8, 
verse 12, because it gives some important background as to why, um, as we're going to see, uh, the response in verse 59, the last verse of the gospel reading, why that happens, why the Jews want to pick up stones to throw at him. So starting in verse 12, John 8, verse 12, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They, that's the Pharisees, said to Jesus, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, he will kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He, Jesus, said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, we're not quite to where our gospel reading starts, but you can see where this has started. Jesus is in the temple. He's preaching these things, and the Jews are very confused. Well, who is your father? Who, just who are you? Here's this man saying, I'm going to die in my sin. Well, who is he to say such a thing? And then shockingly enough to most of the Jews there, many were believing in what this guy was saying. And so you can see why this tension is already building with what we're going to get to in our gospel lesson. You can see why their anger, anger is starting to build and build and build because what he's saying is very scandalous, very uh, inflammatory in their mind statements. You don't get to just say these things. It's like walking uh, into, you know, Washington, D.C. and declaring yourself the president. It doesn't work that way, right? Uh, hopefully, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so here in the temple, uh, Jesus is very, very. Uh, scandalous in what he's saying. Very, uh, I guess it, you could say it was a, a hot uh, button that he had pressed, and he was really pressing home as we continue in verse 31 of John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet 
you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God and hears the word of God, uh, whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, you can understand after the context of that, what was maybe a very scandalous statement that would probably very much irritate them, get them angry, has now become multiplied, magnified tenfold. He's made it very clear. When they said, Abraham's our father, he said, okay, but what about God? Well, God's our father. No, actually, the devil is your father. I don't know about you, but if you went around telling people, the devil is your father, you would not get the happiest uh, of reactions on a day-to-day basis. And so you can see why uh, in the temple... There's a lot of tension here. This is not just some random side conversation that Jesus is having with a couple people. But here's this man proclaiming, teaching, who many are following, saying that if you do not believe him, you do not believe the word of God himself, and that you are not of or from God. You're not the children of God unless you believe the word of God. And he is saying, I am proclaiming, the word of God. And so we get to our gospel lesson, and you can see the uh, vitriol that the Jewish leaders have for him immediately in verse 48. The Jews answered him, uh, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So what's their response to these statements by Jesus? Well, he's clearly demon-possessed. This guy does not, cannot possibly know what he's talking about. And by saying he's a Samaritan, they're trying to discredit him. Here they are with uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem, and he, uh, being a Samaritan, would not have gone over very well. So they try to do it twofold. Well, he must be a Samaritan, and he must be demon-possessed. And you'll see in Jesus' answer, he rebukes them pretty quickly. Uh, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. It's interesting, as we read the preceding verses, how many times Jesus makes sure to point to where the glory belongs is God. And as we're going to see, he himself says that he is God, but he's never looking for his own in terms of earthly glory. The Jews' response are always looking for their own earthly vindication for their status, their place in life. And here uh, in his rebuttal to the Jews accusing him of being a Samaritan who is demon-possessed, Jesus answers quite clearly, uh, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Well, what's the only scenario in which someone who was... uh, dishonoring the father, which is the clear indication here, would be accused of doing so by dishonoring this man, well, as if he was truly God 
himself. And so you have Jesus uh, indirectly already uh, stating what he's going to state in verse 58, but uh, quoting himself uh, in terms of uh, being God. And this is where with the Trinity, we've got to be careful when it comes to analogies and other things. Um, But you see uh, where he's already starting to say, well, you can't honor the Father unless you honor me. And therefore, if you dishonor me, you are dishonoring the Father. Uh, We continue with verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, of all the uh, hot-button statements or things that Jesus said that was very confusing in these sections of Scripture to the Jews who were listening to him, Uh, proclaim this in the temple, this would have been probably the icing on the cake, kind of the last straw. Okay, you're never going to see death if you listen to this guy. He cannot truly mean what he's saying. And so the Jews respond to him, now I know, or now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, He will never taste death. So here's Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. That's one of the probably old VBS songs we learned, right? Here are the Jews saying, we are children of Abraham. And Abraham died. The other prophets died. So how can you, who are you, what are you saying that whoever believes my word or keeps my word He will never see death. How can you even say that? And so in verse 53, you see their response. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? We think about maybe people in our lives, maybe times we could have felt disrespected or Someone comes in and they start, perhaps it's at work, telling you what to do and you don't know who this is. You know, it's kind of our natural response as sinful humans. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? And on Father's Day, it kind of strikes me a little ironic because I'm sure those of you who are fathers here have maybe heard that once once or twice from your your children. I know I'm certainly not innocent in terms of uh, always respecting and listening to my father growing up. But uh, you, hear, um, you hear how strongly and how passionately they are opposed to what he is saying. How this is cutting them at their very core. How can this guy just waltz in and say he has the keys to eternal life? How can he say that those who keep his word will never die? How can he say that... He glorifies the father when Abraham, father Abraham himself, is dead, like the rest of the prophets. And so in verse 54, uh, Jesus responds, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. Now, in case there was any confusion, Jesus is clear here. We're talking about the same father. Before you start saying that God, your God, is different than whom I'm talking about, we read what Jesus says to them, uh, of whom you say he is our God, the father who glorifies Jesus. So the one that they've been following, Yahweh himself, is the one who glorifies Jesus, the one they claim to be their God. And so you hear in Jesus' response, he's not beating around the bush here. He is going straight at the heart of the complaints, of the anger, the frustration that the Jews in the temple had with what he was saying. In verse 55, we read, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. 
Now that's pretty inflammatory stuff right there. You can imagine uh, this man is talking to you, and you've just asked him, well, who are you? And he says, well, the Father, the one you say is your God, glorifies me. And if I didn't say it, well, then I'd be a liar, just like you. If I said that I did not know God himself, I'd be like you, who though you claim that he is our God, Jesus is very clearly implying that they are lying about who they believe in and who they trust in. So now you can see, especially if you think about those verses we read before this, tensions are going to be (laughs) very, very high. It's one of those moments you'd like to kind of be a fly in the wall just to see the faces turn red of all those leaders. Each time he keeps responding with something that's going to get them more and more worked up and is more and more inflammatory and it cuts more and more at their heart as you can see by their response because they respond with such great vitriol. Uh, Your father Abraham, this is in verse 56, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Okay, here we're back to the father Abraham. Remember, Jesus is using the things they're saying against them, saying that if your children of God, if you're children of Abraham, you would be rejoicing in me because the Father is the one who glorifies me, the one you say he is our God, and your father Abraham, in terms of your earthly lineage, he uh, would, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the two kind of cornerstones that the Jews have placed themselves on that were uh, children of the Father, God the Father, and were children of Abraham, Jesus is very clear in saying that, well, both God and Abraham would rejoice in this day. And so you can see why now, as we get towards the end, they're not going to be happy. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that statement right there, you could probably have heard a pin drop after because of how shocking that would have been for someone to claim to be, I am. Remember, I talked to you at Psalm 8 that that first Lord, the one that was all capitalized, was uh, Yahweh, translated easily into English as I am. Uh, Yahweh is the Hebrew for it. I am would be, it's literally, I exist. I am the one who is. And here's Jesus saying, before Father Abraham, the one you said I could not have possibly seen, I am am and they're probably sitting there thinking whoa we thought this guy was crazy but what did he just say it's like one of those moments where maybe if they had dvr they'd have to go back and rewind and just double check that they heard that correctly before abraham was i am you can kind of see why this Uh, gospel lesson is chosen for series C for the festival of Holy Trinity. It's a very clear statement by Jesus, uh, similar to what we'll see later uh, in the gospel of John from John 10, that he and the Father are one, the one true triune and living God. And so before Abraham, Jesus can say with all certainty, I am And so the Jews' response, (laughs) they picked up stones to throw at him, which you can somewhat, as humans, understand. That this guy waltzed into their temple, is converting people away from them. He is saying that they're all liars. He is saying that uh, he knows the truth. He is saying that uh, those who keep his word will never die. And then the straw that breaks the camel's back He is saying, I am. That before Abraham was, I am. And so he is equating himself with Yahweh himself. He's equating himself with God. And 
You did not do that in first century Jerusalem. And so the almost natural response to such uh, an inflammatory, in their minds, statement, to such uh, a claim, the only proper retaliation was to pick up stones to throw at him. But we read that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You know, it's interesting, uh, in the start of that, those preceding verses, one of the reasons I went through the context so much is that Jesus says a couple times, you seek to kill me. And maybe they were thinking at least at that moment, well, not, no, maybe we're may- angry, but we're not, you know, we, we think maybe you're a crazy person. Yet by the time he's done with this conversation, they literally seek to kill him. And it's again one of those moments where you have to wonder what that possibly could have been like to be in that temple. And as we read in the preceding verses, many believed in him. There were likely families split apart. There were likely families that were in disagreement. Um, And it's one of those times where you see kind of the human, the sinful reaction to the gospel to the proclamation of God's word, literally the word made flesh. And lest we think that they're the only ones guilty of it, it's how often do we see that sort of reaction today? It's usually not with stones, though in some parts of the world, it is still very literally with stones to kill you. But in terms of what we see with culture and in America, how we see uh, Jesus and God treated how we see it warped to fit our desires instead of listening to what God's word says God is. What I am says he is. And so it's interesting before, you know, it's one of those moments where you think, well, boy, I wouldn't have been like those Jews in the temple ready to pick up a stone and hurl it at him. Maybe take a second of a humble pie and think about the ways in our own lives that we uh, can so adamantly reject what God's word tells us because it doesn't fit what we want to believe in a moment. It doesn't fit what we feel comfortable with. It doesn't fit the way we've traditionally maybe even done things in certain, com- certain circumstances. And we realize that as humans, as sinful humans, oftentimes we're not all that different than those Jews in the temple who couldn't help but react to pick up stones to try and hurl at this inflammatory, in their minds, proclamation. And then when you go back and read the proclamation, I'd encourage you to read those preceding verses of chapter 8 and what Jesus promises, what he proclaims. It is a strong proclamation of the gospel, that those who keep his word will have eternal life, that those who believe in him will not perish, and yet the response is just as vitriolic, just as anger-filled, sometimes hate-filled, as we see even in our culture in America and across the world today. So that is the gospel lesson. I know there is a lot there to unpack, but that's why I want to do that second. Uh, I never go in order, so you'll have to forgive me, but uh, that's why I wanted to do that second, because I wanted to make sure we got through all of that, including the background, because it really gives Um, some critical perspectives when we think about their response um, just as to what was going on in their heads, what was going on uh, on that literal day that caused such anger, such, uh, in their minds, scandal from what Jesus was saying. And then also because next week we are celebrating the Festival of Holy Trinity, a great reminder that uh, lest we think any other way, that truly Jesus does claim to be God, that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And we'll talk more about that uh, if we get uh, to that point of the uh, first reading, I guess, for the Acts reading for next Sunday. Uh, But at this time, I'll open it up to any questions. Yes. So the question was, uh, we read in the gospel lesson that Jesus said that Father Abraham uh, rejoiced 
that he would see this day, and he saw it and was glad. And quite simply, the question was, how did that happen? Well, there's a couple things. One, we know of God's promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, but two, and I think this would be the most uh, likely rash, or, uh, response to this, I should say, is that um, there's certain aspects of, uh, I guess, being a believer and our trust in salvation that in heaven we don't know exactly uh, how it works, right? You don't know exactly what it's going to be like other than it's an extremely joyous moment. So I don't know, um, you know, I, I don't want to say it was that past Tuesday he had gotten word because we don't read that. Right? And we have to be careful anytime we have something that doesn't maybe seem, um, we, do, we don't want to make up just to come up with an answer, but rather, as we think about what God's word tells us, I think those are the two kind of responses. One, we don't fully know exactly how he saw it, um, but two, he also was given the promise by Yahweh himself, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and so that would be kind of the twofold response I'd give to that. Yes, Jen. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's where, again, like many words in English, there are two understandings. So saw, oftentimes in the Greek, you have the saw of literally, I saw this, like I see um, those banners right there. And then you have the, I see what you're doing there, meaning you don't necessarily physically see it, but you understand uh, what you were doing. And so again, there is a little bit of ambiguity there. Um, but absolutely, Abraham displayed faith. And we read in uh, Romans that Abraham's faith is what was credited to him as righteousness. So that is certainly um, uh, evident both in the Old and New Testament that Abraham uh, did have true faith in God's promises for him and his uh, children. All right. We have any other questions? All right. Well, let's go on uh, to the second reading, uh, the Acts reading, which is from Acts chapter 2. And if this looks familiar from last week, that's because this is part of Peter's overall Pentecost speech. Um, but we get the part that came after uh, where last week's reading ended. So last week's reading was 1 to 21 uh, for Pentecost on June 9th. And so for the next, what would typically be the next Sunday, though today because of our uh, uh, special circumstances, we're going to be celebrating the Festival of Holy Trinity next week. The very next, essentially, reading is the rest of that speech. Uh, but we start with verse 14, which you did read uh, last Sunday. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And the first rebuttal here, and this is uh, kind of the one that people tend to always remember, that's not in this lesson, but in verse 15, is the first thing Peter does is uh, establish that he's not drunk. If you remember, to put it kind of crassly, if you remember verse 12 of Acts, um, the last thing the people are saying to themselves who aren't believing is, well, these men on Pentecost, they must have had too much wine because it's crazy what's going on. So Peter reminds them in verse 15 that he, him and the other disciples are not drunk, as is only the third hour of the day, probably about 9 a.m. or so. So uh, that is his first rebuttal. But since we did Pentecost last week, we'll go all the way, skip from all the way down to 22, which is the start of the assigned portion of the speech. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what's Peter's first point here? The Jesus who you saw doing all these signs, you know, it's kind of being clear. We're going to talk about the same person here. You got to make sure you remember who we're talking about. And they would have remembered this would have been a uh, talked about event, to say the least. All these signs that he had done, that one you killed, that Jesus, uh, God raised him up, if we're in, we're in verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what's Peter's kind of immediate, I guess you could say the, the, the bullet point, the, the opening, well, this Jesus, this man, the one who did all the miraculous things, the majestic things, the awe-causing things, that one that you killed, God raised up. And maybe a shorter term for it would be Christ Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. In a few more words, it's the Easter message, right? It's the key to everything. And he starts right there. But then he gives some background in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. There, Peter is quoting from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, we read, I have set the Lord, and you can kind of listen to this while looking at how he quotes it to see just how almost identical it is. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what's Peter doing by quoting this psalm here? Well, he's establishing uh, to those that have a knowledge of the Old Testament that this Jesus, the one you crucified, that God raised up, this is the very one that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Uh, what they would have known simply as the Word of God in those days. They didn't have an Old or New Testament yet. Um, but the one that David proclaimed, the one that he praised, the one that was promised to come, this guy, that's him. And we read in verse 29, Peter say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, to this day. Well, why is it important that he says that? Well, if you look at verse 27, what he quotes from David is David saying, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So here's a reminder that, yeah, David did die. But those words that he spoke, the words of Psalm 16, that doesn't make them untrue. In fact, God has confirmed them in Jesus. And in verse 30, we read, being therefore a prophet and knowing that, uh, let's see, where did Got cut off. Oh, there it is. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the, his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The thing David was saying, the thing David proclaimed, here is the confirmation of those psalms. Here's the confirmation of the promise that God made to his people. The people that, yes, have died. But even though they die, they are not abandoned in to Hades. They're not abandoned by God, but rather they are kept secure through the one that you killed and God raised up. In verse 33, we read, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. What's the whole point of this speech by Peter? He's hitting at one key important point. The promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And in case there's any confusion, Christ was this Jesus, that one that you killed, that one whom God raised up, the one whom was promised to come, the one whom David himself trusted, he is the confirmation that God keeps his promises. And that quote, that second quote from David is from Psalm uh, 110. And it's uh, verses one through four. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's David's comfort? The promises of God. What's your comfort? The promises of God. What, were the, what was the comfort to those at Pentecost who were listening to Peter's speech? The promises of God. The promises that were fulfilled and that Jesus, the one that you killed, and God raised up. And it's interesting, uh, Jesus himself actually quotes this psalm in Luke 20, when he says, uh, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in hearing of all the people, he said this to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feast. Now you can maybe think so. Jesus is quoting, or Peter is quoting what Jesus has quoted, but also quoting David. What's the purpose of this? Well, there's a couple things here. First, you notice what the whole point of Jesus's quotation was, is to remind them that uh, though the psalm says that the Lord will send forth from Zion your mighty scepter to rule in the midst of your enemies in holy garments, that's not the scribes. That's not those who are walking around in the long robes, who are trying to offer long prayers, the ones who are trying to point back to themselves for their own glory, that's not the type of garments, that's not the type of ruling that we're talking about, or that God's talking about in the psalm. Rather, those holy garments are probably what we would consider very simple 
looking garments. They're garments that would be stripped from him. They are the things that perhaps don't strike us, of course, right away as being particularly royal. And yet they are the most majestic things of all. The things that Jesus did are truly the most majestic thing that God has done in all of creation. The fact that his son died for our sins and then was raised from the dead. And so then, as we get ready to wrap up here, I think back to Psalm 8 and those verses 1 and 9. And when we think of what the psalmist declares, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is the thing that God has done for each one of us. How majestic is the thing that he's given the world, his very life tortured and hung on a tree so that we would truly have life with him, that we, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, keep his word, and that though we die, yet shall we live, just as he said in the gospel in John uh, chapter 8. So with that, uh, we're at about 1026, so I'm going to open up for questions. Uh, Any last questions before we wrap up? All right, well, let's have a uh, word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to spend time in your word today. Thank you for all the gifts, the truly majestic things you have done for us. That as we go out on this Father's Day, as we continue into this summer, that we would never lose sight of the truly majestic wonder that is uh, your son's sacrifice on the cross for us and his resurrection on the third day. That in all that we would do, we would proclaim the very truth that this uh, sacrifice and resurrection brings salvation for the entire world. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.